As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is a blockbuster. I mean, anytime you're talking about Yasiel Puig on the move and he's going to Cincinnati, that is a big deal given the impact, the star power of yep. Puig. There's a lot to unpack with this deal. You take a look at what the Reds gave up. Bailey, he's, it's his last year of, of a year where he's going to make $23 million, but... For the Reds, you know, they're picking up some guys who can still play the game. And they also would to add to Tanner Roark, who they also have signed. So, Hello and welcome to another edition, a Christmas Eve edition of the Racing Presidents podcast here on NBC Sports Washington. I'm Tim Showers alongside Todd Dibas today, just the two of us, uh, as we're going to react to the latest going on in the world of Nationals and baseball just before the holiday. Uh, Todd, before we get into it, any special Christmas plans for you this year? Uh, no, it's the annual plan of just surviving the, uh, the holiday grind here. I, I do have a, uh, very important personal item that I bust out this time of year. It is an ugly Christmas sweater, but it has Ric Flair on it, which makes me feel like it's a very special, ugly Christmas sweater that I haven't really seen other people wear. So, um, that is on the agenda here today on Christmas Eve and we'll do some presents and have some more family time and have a good time. I, I saw Rick for in the airport a couple months ago. So I, I like that ugly sweater. Did, uh, did you woo at him? I'm not a wrestling person. Uh, so <laughs> I just said to my wife, I feel that, like he's so transcendent. You don't have to be a wrestling person. I, well, you I knew who he was, but I said to my wife, woo I, go, him. <laughs> I said, that's Rick Flair. And she said, who? Uh, and that was the extent of that conversation. So, uh, too bad. <laughs> uh, I will be uh, having a lot of Chinese food in the next thirty-six hours. So, I'm, ah, yes, I'm looking forward to that for uh, my holiday celebration. Uh, today on the show, we're, we're going to mainly talk about uh, the latest with Bryce Harper. He is still unsigned as uh, at the point of this taping, and Annabel Sanchez is now a member of the starting rotation. And we are also going to uh, do our 2019 personal Hall of Fame ballots. I am not a voter. You're not a voter as well, right, Todd? Not yet. Nope. Right, not yet. But anyways, we're pretending today that we are actual voters, so we're going to talk about that on the show. But we are going to start with the big trade that Los Angeles had last week with Cincinnati, clearing the decks in their outfield, seemingly uh, not only slashing some payroll, but also opening up room in their starting outfield where the headliners were Yasiel Puig and Matt Kemp, and Alex Wood are going to Cincinnati. The Reds sent uh, Homer Bailey, the pitcher, to L.A., who then immediately released him, sort of like an NBA-type trade uh, yeah. in, in that regard. Todd, what were your main takeaways of that trade, not only from just 
the trade itself, but also as it relates to Bryce Harper? Uh, I would say here we go was my main takeaway. I, I was, I didn't think that Los Angeles would be able to move all those salaries in one shot. So kudos to them. And they got a prospect back for doing so. I don't know what Cincinnati's doing. Um, it's very confusing to me how they're assembling their team and what they're spending and how over the top they're kind of going with it at this point. But that's, that's a different topic for me. I, I thought this gives Los Angeles a lot more financial flexibility, uh, which was one of the main sticking points for them in the pursuit of Bryce Harper. Um, you know, they were under the tax this most recent season. So their clock reset. So, you know, they're able to handle the tax next year if they need to get into it. And then, and they're able to do this, while staying under it, they can still, you know, make some moves and find a way to stay under it, even if they pay Bryce Harper $35 million on average. So it was very interesting to me as listeners of this podcast know, I've long felt like Los Angeles was the top likely destination for Bryce Harper. And this just kind of made me feel that even more, although we always have the caveat that Andrew Friedman doesn't want to give people long-term contracts there. He wants to keep things short-term and maintain some flexibility. So that's kind of in the back of this, but still it, it was pretty eye-opening to see them clear the outfield, clear the cash, because we know there's an outfielder who requires a lot of cash out there on the free agent market. Do you think this move was solely, I know you just explained a lot there, but do you think Harper was the motivation for this move or do you think, there well let me rephrase do you think that the two motivations for this move were solely money and harper or do you think that this move was made with also hey if we don't get harper it's fine i think it was made with their number one favorite thing in mind and that's flexibility so you know if they need can they move for jt riamuto or could they trade for one of cleveland starters or could they possibly re-engage or further engage with bryce harper you know what can they do? They wanted to give themselves options. They love to have options and flexibility. This is typically what good organizations do. You, you put yourself in a position for success. You don't rely on someone else to do that for you. Um, so I think it made it more logical and possible that Bryce Harper could go there. I, was, I already thought it was pretty logical, um, but it also gave them other options. So I think it just opened things up for them to see how how they wanted to shake out and kind of pit this against that and then make a choice here going into January. I don't know what Alex Wood's contract situation is, but I can guarantee you this already. One of the first things I thought of after this trade, other than the Harper ramifications was that Alex Wood will be a big topic of conversation in mid to late July next year. Cause he's going to be a viable starting pitcher, a left-hander who can also pitch out of the pen. Uh, it's going to be on a bad team that team would like to acquire for cheap in their postseason run. Yeah, he's a free agent in 2020, so that makes a lot of sense. And as I said, I'm very confused by what Cincinnati is doing. With I feel like we've seen this type of team assembling uh, prior, and, and it rarely, rarely works. I think of San Diego a few years ago, um, and that was just a hot mess out there. And I, I just don't, they don't have any pitching. When they traded for Tanner Roark, we asked one of the beat writers, where does he, and he's like, well, he's probably the number two. Okay. Well, 
okay, so <laughs> you got you got some work to do if that's the case, and you think you're going to be competitive or a winning team. Um, and then they added Alex Wood, who you know he's fine, and to your point, his his price point and what he does is going to be very lucrative to a competitive team in the middle of the year. But is he a reason you're going to end up in the playoffs? I, I don't think so. So um, it's very strange what they're doing. But yes, Alex Wood would, would be a very interesting piece, um, basically an Eovaldi type from the other side. Well, Eovaldi was certainly a hot name in September and October uh, last season. Uh, also, Cincinnati might have a ticket sale issue. I remember last year when the Nats played there early in the year in April, it was like empty on Sunday. It was like the third game of the season or so, something like that. So I don't know if they're just yeah, trying to get that, some names. Year, it, it, was, it was not it was not great. And um, and that also told us what was to come all season because there was a postponement because of rain in that opening season, if you recall. So yep. uh, opening day we should have all been yeah. like, yeah, we should all been like, oh, man, this is a really bad harbinger for the rest of the season and the amount of rain we're about to receive here. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, any, before we move on to Animal Sanchez, any more on the Harper front? Has there been anything else with Harper to Philly, New York, Chicago, mystery team, etc.? Yeah, I think there's some curiosity now about where the Cubs are, if they're going to try to move several pieces around to see what they can get done. There, there was a report in the Chicago Tribune by Gordon Whitmire that uh, Theo Epstein asked Scott Boris to check back with them before they make a final decision. So I think that's interesting. Um, you know, I think a lot of us thought the Cubs and the Dodgers would be involved eventually here. And I, we're, we're starting to see that as everything, as everything shakes out. And I do feel like the kind of, I feel like it was kind of silliness around the White Sox um, is starting to fade about the reality of Bryce Harper and, or Manny Machado going there. I, didn't think that made a lot of sense um, from the start, and uh, it seems to make less sense now. Do you think the White Sox thing was really, you know, December is a big time a year to sell season tickets for the next year yeah. for those who didn't renew. Do you think that it was simply a shadow marketing ploy, or was there more <laughs> to it than that? I think it can't hurt. If you're Jerry Reinsdorf, right, and you're the White Sox, it can't hurt to get it get a media narrative cooking that you may be involved here. So no matter what level your actual involvement is and um, you know, and Scott Boris would be all for that too. So why not, why not kind of drum it up um, and then see how much reality there is to it behind the scenes, but publicly it makes perfect sense for everybody to drum it up because they all benefit in one way or another. All right, well, that is our latest uh, on our Bryce Harper look-in. I'm sure we'll have more future podcasts to come. We're now going to switch to players that are actually officially on the Nationals roster. Curveball, and he was a little out in front of that one. And that is the uh, first strikeout for Sanchez. Starting pitcher, Anibal Sanchez. He signs a two-year deal, leaving Atlanta to come to Washington. He is in his mid-30s. Todd, you uh, voiced a sort of a quick podcast immediately reacting to the news, but let's reset on that. What are your main takeaways on Sanchez now being in the national starting rotation? He had undergone four consecutive years of significant decline. And then somehow last year had a 143 ERA plus. Uh, <laughs> that would have been second on the national staff, only behind Max Scherzer. Um, that was better than Patrick Corbin last year. 
And, you know, he did it by throwing a bunch of off speed and um, just pitching well month after month for Atlanta. There were no huge fluctuations where, you know, he had a month of, you know, 1.23 and then a month, of, you know, almost four. Um, he was pretty steady throughout the year. So uh, I'm highly skeptical of, A, there's no, to me, there's no chance he's going to repeat, right? He's going to regress which is okay because his ERA was 2.83. And as I said, his ERA plus was 143 and he's going to be your fourth starter. And so you're going to build in some expected decline there. And even if there is moderate decline, he's still better than what Tanner Roark gave you um, in those two departments the last two years. However, he also only threw 136 and two thirds innings last year. So now you're looking at roughly a gap of 50 innings between him and what Roar gave you. And you're looking at a fifth starter spot, which is completely unsettled. And you have two young guys, neither of which appear to be ready to do, you know, 28 to 32 starts. So you have to make up the 50 innings that Sanchez is short of Roar. You have to make up the innings that the young guys can leave it on the table in the fifth start. And so there's still some, a lot of innings and several starts to make up, um, because he signed Anibal Sanchez. So that makes me wonder what's next. So Anibal Sanchez last year was, for those who didn't pay attention last year, he was the second best pitcher on a division-winning team, which were the Atlanta Braves. Now, the Braves staff was unusually weak for a division champion, uh, and, and the yeah. you know Mike fulton was the ace, and really by the end of the year, Kevin Gosman <laughs> uh, was taken off the Baltimore scrap. He'd been turned into their third-best pitcher. But, but Sanchez was very reliable you mentioned it was a little bit out of nowhere based upon his previous few years and a regression is natural. But if he were to regress, you know, he was, the as I said, he was the number two guy in Atlanta. So now he's expected to be the number four. So you mm-hmm. sort of have that built in expectation for a regression. Yeah. And it would seem and the Atlanta starters were number two in ERA in NL ERA last year. So I just it's just his change from prior years is so egregious. I mean, he went 80, 73, 70, 143 in ERA+. Um, if, if I have some time here over the holidays, I might sit down and try to find other equivalent jumps in ERA+, year over year. I mean, that's reliever level, right? You have a reliever who bombed out the year before, and then he's elite the next year. That happened, but it happened to Anibal Sanchez when he turned 34 years old. Um, so it's, it's a, a strange situation. I will say, as you mentioned, the Braves factor here, now that they they took their catcher, um, you know, he was platoon, but one of the main players in Kurt Suzuki, and now they took someone out of their rotation too. So they've taken two pieces away from the team that ended up winning the division last year and two pieces that definitely helped them win the division. So at, at a minimum, you're extracting them from Atlanta. You put them on your roster, you're obtaining some more information and maybe you're getting good on-field performance from them as well, taking that away from the Braves. So these are all small things that can kind of add up and make these signings a little more than they are in a vacuum. Suzuki was the Braves' best catcher last season, and in the playoffs, days he didn't start, he was their best bat off the bench. Now, the bench was was terrible, uh, but in, like, for instance, game four against the Dodgers, which was their final game of the season, he 
was the main pitcher, came off the bench, and really had the only offense for the game. So, you know, he was, you mentioned, he was a very important piece for Atlanta. I mean, he certainly wasn't Ronald Acuna, but, uh, yeah, that is a major trade with within the division. And it seems like every move is only happens now in the NL East this year, <laughs> <laughs> this offseason. Wilson Ramos to New York. Right. Yeah. You're right. Uh, yeah, that was uh, – Nats fans uh, not going to be able to really move on from Wilson Ramos. I mean, you know, he went away to Tampa, you, you know, out of sight, out of mind, but back to Philly last year for the stretch run, and now he's a New York Mets. So Wilson Ramos uh, will be visiting D.C. many more times next season. Yeah, and was in D.C. Uh, for the All-Star break last season because he, he was an All-Star who was rumored to be possibly traded back to the Nationals, and he – I was like, I don't know what's happening. He was just sitting at his table in the back um, during the All-Star game. How weird was it? It was a cool moment, but how weird was it when Blake Trinan was announced as an All-Star last year coming from Oakland in D.C.? I bet a lot of Nats fans were like, whoa, wait, what? Blake Trinan's an All-Star now? What's going on? <laughs> he, he was killing. I mean, absolutely killing at the All-Star break and, and for and for most of last season. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was it was impressive what he was doing out there, and he he seems, you know, he just fits that Oakland narrative perfect, right? You know, they take someone like that, and he finds his groove out there, um, which he did. His his numbers were bonkers at the break. Uh, and uh, let me close out the Sanchez versus Roark thing. I was critical in the move last week when we talked. I said, you know, in a vacuum, I didn't like the Roark trade. Was waiting to see what was next. We talked about some of the names we could have replaced. Animal Sanchez was the top end of that list that we mm-hmm. talked about. In the end, I do think uh, it was a good move by by Rizzo and the Nats. I, I do think that it makes sense, the sort of Sanchez for Roark swap. Do you feel the same way as me, or do you think they would have been better off just keeping Roark? Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant. I'm, I'm hesitant because of what I mentioned prior in the gap of in innings. Um and so they don't have any pitching depth. So if Fetty gets hurt, which happens often, um, and you, and you have to limit Joe Ross, you're already pretty soft in that fifth spot. And so now you have a guy who's not going to take all his turns in the fourth spot. So who then who's pitching? And they don't really have a good answer for that. So they they so that's my main concern. I I think the. You know, the performances are a wash probably otherwise, or maybe Sanchez outperforms him to to a modest degree and you receive the prospect out of it. So from that angle, you know, that's what Mike Rizzo would seemingly argue. Look, we got it we got the better starter. We paid the same basically the same amount, although we're ultimately on the hook for more total, but this year we paid basically the same amount for a guy who will perform a little better and we got a prospect. But for me, the main concern is where those innings going to come from. And if someone in front of them gets hurt, then then what are you going to do when Strasburg inevitably goes on the disabled list? Where how are you going to patch those starts? Because you're already soft in you know one and a half other spot other spots at the back end of the rotation. So that's certainly my main concern. And I'm curious if the Roark trade is going to force them to find another veteran starter to pay here, uh, Wade Miley or someone else to add to the mix to make sure they have enough guys. Yeah, Wade Miley was was one of the main guys in the Milwaukee rotation last year, if you could really call Milwaukee uh, a starting rotation based on the way 
they handled it. You're you're right about everything you're saying as it relates to the Nats and, and figuring out the innings and figuring out the fifth starter. I just like to remind you. I know you know this, and our listeners, <laughs> there are not 150 people on this planet who are worthy major league starters. There has to be because right. there's right. 30 teams times five, but sure. every team has that problem of figuring it out. It's a it's just a it, that's why Patrick Corbin makes what he makes to be a third starter. Yeah, and but. So my counter to that is you don't have to figure it out if you kept Roark. So you know what his performance would be. You just found it unacceptable. It's been league average or slightly below for a couple of years. But you you know durability-wise what um, he's going to be. So that would have given you an answer, and you would have had to figure it out in the fifth spot. Instead, here you need to figure it out in a few places. Wade Miley made only 16 starts last year. So he would be a real good patch, um, and you know, and give you another 16 to 20 starts to play with if you pay him. But now you're paying two people because you traded one. I, I get, I totally get the point. I'm just, I was just sort of bringing it to the point where Nats fans are hearing us kind of mention the back end of the rotation. And I'm just reminding people that every team not only has back end of the rotation problems, but some of them have front end of the rotation yeah. problems as well. Yeah, so sure. um, you mentioned Eric Fetty and Joe Ross. Certainly they're going to be competing for the fifth spot. In spring training, that will be one of the main storylines. What's your guess on who is the first guy to be the fifth starter? I think it's pretty clearly Joe Ross, but um, they're still watching him, if you will. You know, his they were more concerned about kind of how getting him back out there and how he felt and those things than specific results at the end of last season once he came back from Tommy John surgery. I think they'll give him every chance to claim that spot, but still you're not going to get 30 starts out of him. You're probably going to get 20. So there will be chances for Eric Fetty to make starts. If he finally gets it together and has a good spring, then, you know, I think they're, they're willing to consider that for sure. But I I would think when they walk in there in their heads, it's, it's Joe Ross until Fetty beats him out. Austin Voth, any chance? I don't think so. I they because they had chance after he pitched really well in Syracuse last year, and he was one of the few pitchers to do that. Their staff was atrocious, and instead of bringing him up, they jumped Jeffrey Rodriguez over AAA and brought him up, um, who was ultra raw and not ready, and but he was the more intriguing kind of athlete and more intriguing stuff wise, and um, Austin Voth and. Uh, uh, sinker baller they just kind of left him down there and then they brought him up in September and kind of shrugged in their usage with him and so you know I don't think so um and that's what concerns me is when you look at what's at Syracuse there's nothing they wanted to use last year is at Syracuse so I don't know why that would change year over year which is why uh the depth remains a focus so we're, all three guys we're mentioning are also right-handers as well. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at a rotation where Corbin is the only left-hander in, in, the, in the top five, whatever uh, that order is, just for housekeeping's sake. Lastly, uh, on the pitching topic, your guess, let's just say Ross is the fifth starter, which I agree. I think Ross will be the fifth starter. I think Fetty's going to be in the bullpen and Voth's going to be in the minor leagues to start the season. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that would all make make sense to me. I think. I mean, 
I think Fetty has a shot at the bullpen. They, they do need a long man down there, but um, I think he still has some refining to do despite the fact he's, he's getting older at this point. So, you know, he, he's someone that needs to figure it out pretty soon. I would assume that they're running out of patience with him. Um, his results have been just really poor at the major league level. He's either been hit hard or he's had command problems or both. And, um, that, and then he gets hurt. So that's not a winning trio. If you're a young starting pitcher trying to define yourself in the major league. Yeah. When he, when he came up, like it was remember a few years ago, it was, it was a, a deal. It was something, you know, there yeah. was some excitement behind it. And this, the performance has not met that excitement at all. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's a first round pick. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is you're supposed to be getting it done at the major league level and you're a first round pick, but he's going into his age 26 season. So clock's ticking. Clock is ticking on that. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate, not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois. 0-2, two outs, ninth inning hit. He's up 6-4. Rivera, sex, and deals. Strike three. All right, the clock is also ticking now on guys on the 2019 Hall of Fame ballot that will be voted on in early January. Uh, here are some of the names, and you have this—you know—some of the steroid guys are still on it, uh, of course, like they always are. Uh, but on the 2019 class, Todd, it's headlined by Mariano Rivera, first time, Roy Halladay, first time, Edgar Martinez is on it. Again, you have Mike Mussina, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, Larry Walker. Omar Vizquel, Todd Helton, Fred McGriff, and there are some other names, including uh, Michael Young, if you remember him from Texas, and Andy Pettit. Yeah, he was an excellent hitter. Excellent hitter. All-Star Game MVP one year, uh, if I, I remember <laughs> as well. And uh, all right, so those are some of the big names. Some of these names have been on for a while because of the steroid issue. But, Todd, as you sort of look at this class, Rivera's a lock. He might even get some of the, the highest percentage votes we've ever seen just sort of based upon how good he was and high profile he was being the longtime closer of a five-time world champion, New York Yankees. Roy Halladay is a lock. Uh, not only was Roy Halladay for a long time the best pitcher in baseball, but the tragic circumstances of his death and him being on the ballot, uh, I think, makes it a certainty. The names that really you can argue about and we can discuss here today starts with Edgar Martinez, longtime designated hitter with the Seattle Mariners. We talked about Martinez, you and I, on the podcast after Harold Baines surprisingly got into the Hall of Fame earlier this month. How many guys will be on your ballot past Rivera and Halliday? Hmm. <laughs> this, is, this is an extremely difficult question, um, and I think we see that how difficult this has become in when we look at the ballots of the current voters. Um, for me, as much as it hurts me 
that certain guys use steroids. To me, Barry Bonds has to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, those, it, I, I don't know what percentage to ascribe to his success of, you know, what percentage of that was a result of him cheating. But there was a really, really, really good player there below below that and um, presumably to me a, you know, plenty skilled enough player to end up in the Hall of Fame um, without those other things. And, you know, and, and I think about like when Alex Rodriguez in PDs and I talked to a veteran pitcher one day when that first was coming out and he was super irritated because he's like, he's so good anyway. Why are you cheating? And I feel like this is applicable to so many of these guys. And, you know, certainly this the case for Barry Bonds. So if it were me, I would vote for Bonds. Um, he was just too good not to. And the cheating part is repulsive. Um, but I think him, the player, is still plenty good to get in there. Uh, Edgar Martinez is trickier well, to let's, me. Let's hold off on Edgar for a second because you, you talk about the steroid thing in Bonds. Uh, if you're putting in bonds, you have to put mm-hmm. in Clemens as well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're you're uh, and not that McGuire and Sosa are on the ballot anymore, but you would be theoretically putting them in. I I wouldn't be putting Sosa in. Why not? Because I don't think he was as good a all around player as those guys. Um, I thought <laughs> he had you know, over he, 600 homers. Yeah, I just. I don't know. I view him differently. I don't view him as the same level of hitter or as Barry Bonds. Oh, no. Barry Bonds is the best hitter I've ever seen, if not in the history of baseball. I, I'm not I'm not saying he's better than Bonds, but Sosa's a Hall of Famer if you ignore the steroid stuff. Um, the guy hit over 60 homers three times. In the year he didn't, he hit 50. Yeah. I don't know. There's just something there that doesn't fit for me. Okay. All right. Well, we we disagree uh, on that one. Uh, I do go back. The steroid thing, I go back and forth. I changes by the day. My opinion of guys like Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. I do, however, want it to be consistent. So if if McGuire and Sosa aren't getting in, I then don't want Bonds and Clemens to get in as well, and, and all those guys. And where I think where I'm concerned about that is, I do wonder if Ortiz if voters overlook that when he becomes on the ballot because he was so popular and is so positively associated with the Red Sox and them winning, you know, three world titles. Uh, I, I, so I want to, you know, if, if you can't put a rod in, I don't think Ortiz should be in. Do you agree with me on that along the steroid line? Yeah, to a degree. Like I said, I, you know, I kind of fluctuate on all this. I, I fluctuate because we're openly in, um, off the cuff discussing it versus sitting down and, and casting a Hall of Fame ballot. I, I think you have a valid point about the consistency that you would like to see if you're going to let one person in and and not another. Um, you know, I, I just, it's just tricky. Um, you know, I one of the things I'll say about this voting stuff, it for we see weird outlier things happen where we we saw that in voting um, for the awards this year where like uh, Juan Soto wasn't on one ballot, right? How, how can that possibly be the case? And then we see 
this most recent thing with the Hall of Fame where this guy's not voting for Mariano Rivera. How, how can that be the case? And I feel like those situations taint everybody else who's voting because those are the situations where, you know, it's just completely inflamed on social media and everybody thinks, oh, these dumb old guys aren't paying attention and this represents the entire Baseball Writers Association and they don't take it seriously and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those things aren't true. And what is true is generally people look at this long and hard and chew on it and it's not simple and it's very subjective despite all the math we have and um, you apply all these qualifiers and try to do the best that you can. So that's how you feel when you're actually casting a specific ballot. So I'm, I am much more open-ended here in the moment as I'm bouncing around baseball reference pages and we're talking about it on the fly. And, and I always fluctuate with the steroid stuff. I used to be adamantly, flatly, no way. Um, but now I kind of changed my mind to a degree, but you have a valid point that if I'm going to change my mind for bonds and I should apply that to Sammy Sosa. Um, but I don't feel compelled to do that in the moment. Well, does it, I mean, well, the Sosa thing is moot because he and McGuire are no longer, you know, on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause they changed it right from 15 to 10 years after you retired. Yeah. It was yeah. reduced. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right. So, the steroid thing, I fluctuate as well, and, I, and I've thought about this more than once. I'm sure you've thought about this more than, more than once as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it is – the more you know about it, the more complicated the issue gets as it relates to the sport and just – and everything with that. I The one thing that really bothers me, and I think Bud Selig is one of the great commissioners in American sports history – but I don't think he should be in if you're not putting in these other guys. Like I, he got in and it bothered me. He was the steward of the sport overseeing all of this. And whether or not you want to say he was respond or, you know, look the other way or, or handle it or whatnot. If he's in, why are these guys not in? I know it's different, but it really kind of isn't the more you look into it. Yeah. Um, it's a weird place because that, and then you can dial back to, you know, so we're drawing the line of cheating. Like, are we, then what are we doing with other personality issues? Um, you know, when we go way, way back to some of the guys that are in there, when in that, and that comes to cultural things and, um, you know, race relation things. And certainly, and then you throw Pete Rose into this mix and you have a lot of things to discuss. Yeah. I, uh, well, the, the rose, the rose thing that 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 has been put to bed. The the Selig thing, it's just like if the steroid era was, you know, the '90s and early 2000s before testing came in in 2005, I believe. You know, he was the commissioner from '93 or whatever to 2005 and, and longer. So I just don't know how you, how you let him in and not those other guys in, but he got in. That that is behind us. So you would put in, we've both agreed that Rivera and Halliday are in, you would put in Bonds and Clemens, correct? Yes. And just real quick about Ortiz, the other complication is, so supposedly he did do this, but he's never said he did it. So. Well, a lot of guys haven't said they've done it. Right. Well, so, but there's, there's no, there was a report that before testing, he used PEDs. 
So there was a, the report was based in 2003, the, a report the public has never seen. So your test, and he's always said that he's never done it. So we know which is true when you're voting, depending, you know, and, and that's where you're drawing the line of whether he's in or not. So it's yeah. a big case by case. It, it, it's, it's a tricky, strange thing. Um, and certainly overall. It's I guess I thing. trust the report is really the basis of where I stand on Ortiz and Ramirez of them as well. And then Manny Ramirez mm-hmm. got popped for an actual uh, violation right. when with the Dodgers. So that, that's that's the leg. But Ortiz never did. The report was in 2009, and he never got popped for a failed test. So um, the, the report was 2009 that he used in 2003. Right. No, no, no. I'm saying, though, no, but around that time, then Ramirez then, in addition, so Ramirez and Ortiz were in the same report as related mm-hmm. to 03. And then Ramirez also later actually had a failed test. Right. Which but are, the other did not. Right. Ortiz did not. I, I am saying, though, I take the report at face value, not only because of the report, but also because I saw what David Ortiz looked like when he was in Minnesota. And then I saw what he looked like in Boston. Sure. And I just believe it. So, uh, but you, that the point you just made is the point that I can see being made by Boston media when it comes time for Ortiz to be up. And I believe Ortiz is up in 2022, right? 2016 was his last season. So we're a few years away from that. Let's see sort of how we feel about the steroid era in three years. Well, the other layer is if everyone was doing it during that era, then are you judging just then do you feel like it was essentially a level playing field for the for the majority of players because so many were cheating? Yeah, this is what you're judging off of that. Yeah, this is where it gets super complicated because. Yeah, like so I think. I think Chipper Jones was a Hall of Famer and he was a first ballot Hall of Famer and he's never been associated with it. And Jeff Bagwell got in. He's never been associated with it, but they played smack dab in the middle of the era. So to say that, oh, neither of them, like just definitively say that neither of them ever took steroids uh, would be a little naive, right? I mean, the, the chances of taking steroids are it's there. I'm not saying they definitely did, but they possibly did. Uh, but, sure. but they've never been, but at the same time, they've never, they were never popped in any way, shape or form. So I give them the benefit of the doubt, but once you've been associated with it, that's when I drop you in the other bucket. Got it. That's how I view it. So would you Kurt Schilling, we are going to get to Martinez, Kurt Schilling. <laughs> he has had a, uh, what's the best way to say is a controversial post-playing career. Let's just say this. When he retired at the time, did you think he was a Hall of Famer? Yeah, I feel like this goes back to something we we just kind of mentioned of the like personality Rorschach test here. Um, we shouldn't be caring about that. I shouldn't. I don't care what Kurt Schilling says on the radio after he retires. Um, what I care about is how he pitched, uh, and he pitched very, very, very well. Um, so to me, I would say – He's right on the edge for me, right on the edge. And again, I would have to sit down and do so many year-over-year comps of who's in and who's not and this and that and extrapolations um, to give a definitive answer. So I, I think I'm a terrible guest for this because I keep waffling. <laughs> That's fine. These are, these are, in terms of these are not important things as it relates to the real world, but in the world of baseball – 
this yeah. is a very important, complicated thing. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, it's uh, it, that that's fine there. Kurt Schilling had 206. Close for me. Very close, yeah. I think, and I, I would, I, you know, the, the post-playing playing career has been, you know, controversial is the proper word to put at it. But in terms of his actual career, 216 wins. He had over 20 wins twice. But he was a crucial member of a starting staff on three different teams that made it to the World Series, two different yeah. that won the World Series. He was the co-MVP of the one World Series with Randy Johnson. He was the ace on the 93 Phillies. And he was, I would say, the second best pitcher on the 04 Red Sox behind Pedro Martinez. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, obviously. 3,000 plus strikeouts. He's famous for the bloody sock game. He had way more complete games than your average pitcher of the era, certainly now more than, than would be in 2018. And he did seem to bring his best in September and October, which doesn't come through. If you look at just sort of the, the overview on his baseball reference page. Right. Yeah. And um, so two, two, three postseason ERA across five years, um, 12 series in the postseason. He was 11 and two wins are what they are still the postseason, you know, very effective there. 0.968 whip. Um, so to me, he checks a lot of boxes. One longevity has allowed him to kind of pile up the kind of numbers that you expect to see in, in the hall of fame when it comes to totals, uh, you know, high level of skill during that longevity, real quality postseason stuff on top of that. So in the, you know, just super reliable guy who obviously the bloody sock, which do you remember that it was suggested that he put ketchup on there and it was fake? Yeah. At one point. I think it was a Doug Mirabelli who kind of started that. Am I remembering? Yeah, what a world that we live in. Oh, um, oh was it, was it a Gary Thorne who was part of it as well? The Orioles announcer was sort of like interviewed about it and said that Doug Mirabelli told him that there was ketchup in it. I, I got to look back and see, um, but it was something I think I believe Gary Thorne was oddly prominently involved in that, in that story in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Very, very strange. So yeah, to me, it, you could easily, you could definitely make an argument that he deserves it. All and, right. Here, and again, wait, sorry, me, sorry. I, important. I, here, here's the story on April 27, okay. 07, Broadcaster Gary Thorne said that he overheard Red Sox catcher Doug Mirabelli said that the blood in the sock used by Schilling was actually paint. Mirabelli accused Thorne of lying in a day later. After talking to Mirabelli, Thorne backed off his statement saying he misinterpreted what was intended as a joke. What a weird story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, again, for me, I, I, I could care less. Uh, about what Kurt Schilling says after he retires when it comes to voting him in the Hall of Fame or not. Um, There are a lot of people who say a lot of dumb things after they finish their sports or other careers. So that that wouldn't influence my vote in either direction. Mike Mussina, are you in or out? (sighs) This is tough because if our coworker Ben Standing hears me say I'm out, then I have to deal with the response to that. Um, if that's what you're concerned about, I, I, I would <laughs> I would plow through it. Where do you stand on Mike Mussina? Best known for being an Oriole, but have you uh, had a sports argument with Ben? Uh, I have not. So is okay. It, then you would share my concern if you had, you had gone down that path. All right, um, that, that's a fair point. Mike Mussina, by the way, he did and talk about ending on a high note. He uh, 
He won 20 games for the first time in his career, his final season in 2008, while with the Yankees, 270 victories. So that's more than Schilling by a long shot, 270 versus 216. A lot of years of 19 wins and was, for a significant period, one of the best pitchers in the American League, if not the best. That is 15 strikeouts for Messina, an LCS record. A lot of durability, 123 career, ERA plus, obviously 18 years of doing that. Didn't hit 3,000 strikeouts, but did throw almost 3,600 innings. I would say he's a tick below Schilling for me, uh, but also super close. I'm always interested to see how right after a guy retires, what would be your immediate view of putting him in? And then what is your view five years later? And is your view changed because of nostalgia? Does your view change because um, you get away and you forget how good they were? Does your view change because of other people you've seen who have been placed in the hall of fame since this person you're discussing has retired? Um, And I feel like, for Mustina, there's been momentum that's much better now than it was right after he left baseball in 2008. I would certainly agree with that. Because I think the 270 thing has aged really well. Because when he was pitching, we were still in the era of guys getting 300 victories. Like, remember, you know, Maddox, Glavin, and Clemens. And, mm-hmm. and that was the – and Randy Johnson got 300 wins. But now you look at it and, like, no one's getting 300 wins anymore. So 270 – like stands out as oh wait, uh, let's put this guy in. I, th- I think that's the main reason. Also, I think it helps that the Orioles haven't exactly replaced him with new legends since he left. <laughs> and that's yeah. that's not a dig at Baltimore. I mean, I, that's just you know the reality. Yeah, no, I, I would say that they haven't replaced him with with anything of that ilk. Uh, relatable. You were going the, through the the, the library. Tenure. You were going through the library of Orioles pitchers, weren't you, to make a cheap joke, weren't you, and held back? Is that what just happened right there? Were you going through some of the guys we've I seen pitch? Just, I I just have last season on the, on the brain for them, yeah. and um, after the winter meetings, and uh, you know, and hopefully talking with some folks up there shortly here for NBC Sports Washington for some Orioles stuff that uh, we're going to pull together. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I and I was thinking about their rotation and just to your point of the reliability of Messina year after year and the wins and all that sort of thing. Yes, that is lacking. Uh, Larry Walker, uh, he is on the ballot. I t- I don't even think it's a conversation. He's at 383 homers. He was a great player for a period in time, but he's not a Hall of Famer. I don't I don't think there's any more to it than that. Yeah, and and I'm always instantly into the splits whenever it comes. To someone from Colorado, so um, you know this is the the Charlie Blackman situation for me. Where, what would he be if he was somewhere else the whole time, uh, other than Car- other than Colorado? He's the most recent example. Um, so he, I thought, yeah, Larry Walker was outstanding for a period of time. He's a two seventy eight career hitter on the road. Still, 865 OPS is, is pretty good. Um, and, you know, he's over 1,000 in Colorado, which is – he did more damage there, but it's not as egregious as um, it is in some cases. You know, his HR split is 215-168. So – but his – let's see, batting average on balls in play in Colorado was 
362. That's a pretty good number for your. All right. So we're going to get to Edgar Martinez right now. And I'll, and I'll just start with this. I do not have Edgar Martinez as a Hall of Famer. And my ballot this year would be Rivera and Halliday. And I'm still debating between Schilling and Musina, adding them as my third and fourth guys. I'm not putting Clemens and Bonds on because of the steroids. I want you to convince me why Edgar Martinez should be a Hall of Famer because I know you, I don't know if passionate's a strong word, but it seems like you're kind of passionate about him being a Hall of Famer. Well, I'm interested in work in Seattle for a long time. So this has been something, a, a drum that has been beaten out there relentlessly um, for obvious reasons. And the DH is always complicated to me. Um, I, I would prefer strongly prefer obviously someone who plays in the field over a designated hitter. Uh, and then you run through the numbers for Martinez and you end up with a guy who played 18 years and ahead of the 933 OPS. And then you wonder, you know, in a 147 OPS plus, um, that's an awfully long time to maintain those numbers. And you wonder, would he have eroded faster if he was in the field? This is what I always think about. But if they just stuck him at first base, to me, probably not. He just would have been at first base the whole time, and maybe there would have been some reduction in his numbers because the effort put forth there. Um, it's just he. It, the, the question to me is, do you view him as a good enough hitter that Solely based on that skill, that's enough to put him in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he had, over an 18-year career, he had more walks than strikeouts. Um, there's just a load of hitting information here that tells you he has a Hall of Fame skill um, in that specific department. And then the question is, what, where, how much do you want to ding him for not being in the field? He gives you longevity. He gives you a long Hall of Fame skill at the plate. I think that's kind of indisputable. Um, but he didn't play the field, and so that makes you decide what uh, is the question to me around him every year. So his home run total is 309 for mm -hmm. his career. That is pretty low as it relates to Cooperstown talk, Todd, for a guy that was solely offensive. Sure, and he, but he has a 312 career average, a 418 on-base percentage, and a 933 OPS. So... um he did a lot of other other hitting things, and uh, you know, and I feel like we're looking at versus strict home run totals in this era. We look more at OPS stuff, and Fair. that you know gives him, as we were just talking about a minute ago, like how were you viewed when your career ended versus how are you viewed now? Um, as we look at the game through a different lens, and we look at the people who have gotten in around you, um, and as you mentioned off the top, they. The number one thing for him is he's going to be in now because of Harold Baines. He can't not be. Yeah. Um, he's, he's just much better than Harold Baines. And so, but a different electorate. Another, he's going to end up there. Yes, definitely different electorate for sure. Well, I'm saying, but that doesn't that factor into it. Like now that the precedent's been set of Baines getting in, the baseball writers might not really care because it was a totally different. They passed on Baines a million times, so they might be like, yep. "Well, that doesn't affect my vote now." Or do you think it does? No, I'm saying for Martinez, he's at a minimum he'll get in via that committee. Is if that committee still gotcha. exists and he gets in front of them, um, the the A to B comparison between him and Baines makes him a lock. If that committee is going to put in Harold Baines, they have to put in Edgar Martinez. Right, but do you think that? 
do you think the, the Baines inclusion affects voters this year? It might a little bit, um, but I feel like there weren't many voters who thought Bain should get in as represented by the past voting. Uh, and I do think they all think that Edgar Martinez is a better player um, and should receive more votes than Harold Baines. Um, you know, I, but I don't I don't think that's going to give him a big jump because they're like, oh, this side committee that is somewhat compromised by, you know, personal preference. Um, and isn't completely looking at this seemingly objectively, you know, when your former boss is one of the voters and you gave him a good career, you know, that doesn't seem like someone who should be voting. So, um, you know, I don't think the, the writers are going to jump on that and be heavily influenced by the fact that the today's game committee voted for Harold Baines and that's going to swing things for Edgar Martinez. I do think the relentless, year after year after year push for Edgar Martinez, um, you know, has gained some ground. And we're seeing that in the early returns on the ballots here that he has a pretty good chance to hit 75%. The, you got to ask this question as it relates to any guy that played out West, certainly on an organization that's never been in the World Series, though they were in the playoffs a lot with Edgar Martinez. If Edgar Martinez played out East, is he a Hall of Famer? I mean, probably for, for like people. We, sorry, let me, right. you know, for people who don't think he's a Hall of Famer, would they feel differently if he, if he played in the in the Northeast? Yeah, no, I, I mean, for sure, right? Everything's everything's bigger out here, and and I can attest to the isolation of Seattle after spending a lot of years out there. It's actually one of everybody's favorite things out there um, is is the isolation level. So it's hard to get word out. It's hard to physically get yourself out of there. <laughs> so in let's if you look at Ortiz, he's career nine thirty one OPS, one forty one OPS plus. Martinez beats him in both places, nine thirty three and one forty seven. So if your view of David Ortiz is that he should get in, then your view of Edgar Martinez should be that he should get in. Well the pushback to that though would be that Ortiz was a crucial player on three different World Series winning teams. Yeah, but Edgar Martinez can't put himself in the World Series. Like, he can't pitch. So um, he played <laughs> on the team that has the most regular season wins of all time as well. So I, I, that's not – I don't want to ding someone for not getting a chance to perform somewhere because if, if we should assume based on his regular season performance that he would have every chance to be a good postseason performer if he had better teammates that could help him get there. It's not his fault. They didn't make the postseason. He was really good for 17 of his 18 years. So do you, um, uh, let's just, for people who don't know much about Seattle as, as relates to Edgar Martinez, if the Mariners were to make the world series, is he throwing out the first pitch at game one or is it Ken Griffey <laughs> or Randy Johnson? Uh, it depends if he's still on staff. They put him on staff, I believe, last year in a you know like in the dugout staff um, in an official capacity. He had always been kind of in this advisor, you know, one of these fake advisor roles that they give guys like that. And he would be among them. I don't think I would. You know, it would be him for me. It would be him, Ken Griffey, 
Junior and Ichiro would be kind of those options. That's there. right, Ichiro. Right, right. Yeah, as far as the fan base would go, Randy Johnson, um, not quite as much, but definitely those definitely those three uh, are in the pantheon out there, without a doubt. All right. Well, we're going to end on on that note. We've uh, we've covered it. <laughs> I think we've covered the, the Hall of Fame ballot from top to bottom. Uh, it's been a uh, interesting December so far, to say the least. Uh, as it relates to the Nationals and, and the free agency hunt. And in a few days, we'll check in. I doubt there'll be any moves over the course of Christmas, but I believe Mark Teixeira signed his big deal to the <laughs> Yankees on Christmas Eve. back he in did. Two, yeah, 2008. Yeah. So so who knows? Maybe it'll be breaking news, but I doubt it. We're going to check back in later this week. Uh, Todd and I want to thank everyone for listening. want to wish everyone happy holidays and uh, in, enjoy whatever traditions you might have. Enjoy the movies. Enjoy the restaurants. Enjoy the eggnog. And we will talk to you later in the week. Thanks for listening to the Racing Presidents Podcast. Here's a swing and a drive deep to left field. Going and going. Goodbye baseball. Home of the bullpen. Edgar Martinez. Split up. Holy smoke a blast. Way out of here to left field. Back to back home runs. Alex Rodriguez and Edgar Martinez. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm -mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.